0: We're seeing a lot more girls come home and take over the family farm, which you don't see that 20, 30 years ago yeah. that daughters were taking over. And I know multiple farms where it's all girls and the girls came home and they're kicking butt at it.
1: This is the Real Food Real People podcast. One of the foods that Washington is famous for growing is wheat. And I've realized that we haven't had any wheat growers on the program yet. Well, we're going to fix that today. Riley Hilly is our guest, and she has a totally unexpected story of how she got into farming. She didn't grow up around it at all. And she shares just kind of how everything works. And we even break uh, some myths in this conversation as well. She is a seed expert, a seed consultant for farmers, as well as a family wheat farmer herself with her husband and and her parents-in-law in the Ritzville area in eastern Washington. Great conversation this week with Riley. And kind of a, an encouraging note at the end, too, about people who are interested in getting involved in raising food, growing food, and it's not maybe as impossible as some people might think. I'm Dylan Honkoop, and this is the Real Food, Real People podcast, documenting my efforts to get to know the real people behind the food produced in our state, the food that we eat and the food that we're famous for in across the country and around the world. So this is all a part of that effort to bring us closer to those people and reconnect our food system here. How do you balance being a mom and a farmer at the same time? I mean, it's gotta be a lot. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's one thing that I never... I never really thought about, you know, growing up. And as I got into married life, um, I was raised by a single mother and she made it look pretty easy, um, yeah. balancing her career. No, she's not in farming. Um, she's an engineer, but balancing that and then all of my activities. And then, you know, as, as we had my son Everett, um, we had him in September, which is the worst time to have a kid on a wheat farm first off. Um, <laughs> because the day that we had him, is usually about the week that my husband starts seeding, uh, we ended up at the NICU with him. And so oh. you, you, right out of the gate, um, we had a lot of challenges just with managing parenting and farming and I have my full-time career too. Um, so it's really a balancing act. I'm very thankful that I have in-laws that are close that will help quite a bit. Um, which has also been challenging with all of the COVID restrictions because my, yeah. my, uh, husband's parents are both high risk and so they haven't been able to help as much as they used to. Um, but I will say one thing that I think ag has a, a lot of industries don't is it is so family focused, like mm. people get it, you know, growers have their toddlers in the tractor with them. And so as a sales rep, sometimes I have to take my kid because it's either that or I don't go out and see a field. And thankfully he's gotten more portable as he's gotten older. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, I've posted pictures. He comes and scouts fields with me sometimes, cause that's what you have to do. Um, so you figure out how to make it work, but it definitely is an adjustment and it's a challenge. And, um, I joke with my husband quite a bit that I'm not a very good farm wife because <laughs> I, I work eight to five ish, but ag never stops. And so I, I answer calls later and sometimes I have a field day that doesn't start until three in Reardon, yeah. which is an hour and a half away. And so, you know, I'm not going to make it to pick up the kid from daycare by five. And so my husband will go grab him and they'll go back on the tractor um, but I don't, I don't really do lunches uh, for my husband or the crew, uh, which is a typical farm wife thing to do. Um, <laughs> yeah. I usually make dinner for him, but sometimes it's yeah. Mac and cheese, but, uh, <laughs> you know, being a dual, a, I'd say a dual farming family, cause we have the farm side and then my seed business side. Um, it it's, yeah, it's a struggle. We don't have it quite figured out yet, but I'm hoping yeah. at some point we'll get there and then you start throwing more kids into it and just add to the chaos, and somehow at the end of the day you make it through it.
1: Yeah, I understand. Congrats are in order. You got another kiddo on the way.
0: Yep, thank you. Yeah, a little girl in February. Uh, much better timing. I'm glad we <laughs> don't do spring wheat. Um, so yeah. I'll miss. I'll be out for spring spring wheat sales um, for for my job, but it, that'll be all right. And like I yeah. said, people get it with farming, and I don't know how this one will go. Last one. Got pretty bored about three weeks into maternity leave. Um, I started <laughs> taking calls again, or calling coworkers, and hey, what's going on? What you doing? Um, so we'll see with with another one, but I I don't think I'm gonna sit idly at home. That's for sure. And um, I've got goats too, and we usually start kidding. Um, I'm gonna push kidding back a little bit since I will be, but uh, probably April we'll start that. Um, and I have a handful of does that that will hopefully twin. Um, so it's it's never a dull moment, even if I'm technically on leave from the day job.
1: I'm really trying to keep myself from making kidding jokes <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've or got I'm just kidding.
0: I, yeah. Yeah, kidding, calving, all yeah. that good stuff.
1: How old is your son?
0: Like, uh, he just turned three last week.
1: Three years old. Yep. So back when he was born, in the middle of wheat harvest. Yep. And you had to go to the NICU. What like what happened there? What was the story?
0: Um, so he was full term, ten pound baby, a uh, big cool. boy. Yeah. Um, but he had brain bleeds um, that caused some seizures starting mm. at about twenty four hours. So we did ten days of the NICU. Um, today's I was Facebook. You gotta love technology. Um, reminded me today. Today's the day we broke out of the NICU three mm. years ago. Um, so yeah, super scary. Um, but family always comes first. And so yeah. my husband, we stayed at the hospital the whole time. What um, happened
1: to Harvest then? Uh,
0: so we were finished with Harvest, thankfully. Um, Seeding yeah. just was a couple weeks later than than ideal. Um, thankfully, at that time, my father-in-law was still able to help out. So he he helped and got stuff ready and did what he could when we weren't here. But, it, it you know, we're a one-man operation right now. Well, we've got a hired man now. But at the time, it was just my husband and my father-in-law when he could. Um, Mm -hmm. so it, it got pushed back. Um, but it, it worked out in the end and he's happy and healthy and seizure free now. Um, so knock on wood for the next one that she comes into it a little bit easier.
1: Yeah. I can't imagine that at brand new baby. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they don't get any younger than that. And then to have medical complications when they are hours old
0: yeah well and especially I don't want to say especially but um you know a lot of the NICU is preterm kids yeah um and so that's kind of what you think that oh well you know you make it full term so everything's going to be fine and happy and healthy and that just wasn't the case for us but um had a had a phenomenal NICU team they did the best they could and um, I somehow convinced my husband to have a September wedding too, cause I wanted it <laughs> outside. And so he gave me a weekend four years ago. So our first anniversary, uh, we were actually in the NICU for that. Um, so it's a, Whoa. it's an exciting week for us every year. Yeah. Um, but I remember, I think it was like 10 o'clock at night and it was our first full day in the NICU and it had, it had just been rough and he had had a bunch of testing done and the, the, our main nurse found out it was our anniversary and she's like, you got to leave, you got to go somewhere just for an hour And so we ended up going to Applebee's um, in (laughs) Tri-Cities for our first anniversary. And I had like half of margarita and, (laughs) and, you know, it was great. And my mother-in-law was super sweet and she brought us just like a little store-bought cake um, because we couldn't have the topper off of our, our wedding cake. And so we celebrated it in the NICU and, I think it's just a real testament to marriage and it kind of speaks to farming. Like there's a lot of ups and downs and you you do what you can with what you're given and you just move forward. And so we celebrated the best we could and now we try and celebrate every year. And my husband got off the tractor last week at (laughs) five uh, and came home and we had a great dinner here at home. And um, so yeah, it it, it works out.
1: So talk us through on, on the farm side, what's the general process that you guys grow Wheat? Do you grow anything else, or no? Nope, we're
0: we're all dryland winter wheat. Um, if we have to put in spring wheat, it's usually because something didn't go quite right over the winter.
1: So what's the difference? Explain like how to, does winter wheat work versus spring wheat?
0: Yeah, so winter wheat goes in the fall. Um, some guys around dryland areas, so Ritzville, Lynn, Connell, um, start end of August seeding. Um, you get over into the Palouse, and those guys seed until October. Some hmm. push it all the way into November. Um, but spring or winter wheat needs, uh, to fertilize. So it needs the cold, um, for it to make grain. So winter oh. wheat goes in, in the fall and then spring wheat doesn't need that cold, um, to produce grain. So that goes in, in the spring. The big thing in, in this area is most of our moisture comes, um, in the winter in the form of snow. So we just don't get enough of the spring rains to support, a spring crop. Um, because the, you're
1: dry land wheat, you're not, yep. which means it's not irrigated. Ground.
0: No, no. So we're 12 and under irrigation or 12 and under rainfall here at Ritzville. 12 um,
1: inches or less? Yep.
0: Yeah. Wow. So we do a winter wheat summer fallow rotation. So we only crop the ground every other year. Um, and in that off year, you know, you hope that you get rain. Um, you have to really maintain soil structure so the soil can absorb as much as possible um, to really hold on that to support. The crop that next year um, and then we farm south of here down in Colodus as well um, which is even drier um, and they get even less spring rain than we do here at ritzville working at 10 and under down there um, but similar system uh, we no-till quite a bit of our ground mm. um, pros and cons between no-till and conventional it really depends on just what your dirt is um, which one works best for your operation but we've had really good success with the no-till Creates a lot more organic matter, which helps retain that moisture throughout the year and hopefully feed your crop.
1: So, that's the point of the fallow year is to try to store up more moisture in the soil yep. essentially? Yep. And then adding, you know, the no till practices kind of help keep that in there as well?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, we have a little, like I said, we do mostly no till, we do have some conventional ground. Um, so you still have to work that ground. It doesn't just sit and you don't just ignore it for a year. You go in, um, until to kind of create a moisture barrier. Um, mm-hmm. after you're done with spring rains, you create that barrier and it helps kind of insulate it. So it's mm-hmm. like a couple inches of fluff pretty much, which acts as mm-hmm. insulation throughout the summer. So you don't evaporate that moisture out, um, on the no-till, the straw residue helps kind of keep everything in, in this area, it traps a lot of snow. Um, so you can... Driving around in the winter, if it gets windy, you can usually pick out no-till versus conventional ground just because that no-till really holds the the snow on there a little bit better. Keeps it from
1: blowing away? Yep. Because you guys probably get crazy winter winds and blizzards and stuff out here, <laughs> don't you?
0: Yeah, yeah. We get some pretty good wind, um, some some pretty good snowfall, a lot of drifts. Uh, this, the house is kind of in a hole, and so we get snowed in usually at least a couple days a year. Um, depending on how bad it is the road crews have to bring out the really big equipment to get through the drifts um so yeah we it's it's kind of the extremes of everything hot in the summer cold and snowy in the winter um definitely all four seasons
1: you're talking about the soil stuff and no-till like soil health is becoming such a big thing as far as like the understanding of it and and how that can change how a crop is grown and also for the impacts beyond the farm as far as like climate change and, and water quality and all the things like that. What What's your perspective on that right now and, and how is that evolving?
0: Oh, soil health is, you know, ever changing. Um, there's a lot of research that's going into it that always has been, but you know, really it starts with your soil, your entire crop does. Um, And so I think farmers have always been really good stewards of their ground Um, because if the ground's not happy, the crop's not going to be happy. Um, End of the day, the farmer's not going to be happy because you don't have anything Mm. to harvest. And so, yeah, a lot of the practices that we do, whether you're tilling or no-till, revolve around that soil structure because it's so important. Um, You know, pretty much everybody does grid sampling, um, to test where your moisture is at, you know, what kind of nutrients are already in your soil so that you're not over applying fertilizers, um, to really make it the optimal for that crop every year.
1: So it's a big deal. That's yeah. Like kind yeah, of yeah. Yeah. It's a big year. deal.
0: Um, it, it, you know, we had all those wind storms, um, last week and it's always a little bit painful to see all that dirt flying around. Cause that's just, that's your topsoil. You need it. You want it to stay where it's at. And so that's kind of the whole goal is to help Help maintain that so you have healthy ground.
1: Back to the whole winter wheat, spring wheat thing, then does that wheat, the winter wheat, then germinate in the fall yet after you've seeded it, or when does it really come up? Like, how does it grow? What's the process there?
0: Yeah, so germination, depending on your conditions, you're looking at hopefully six to 10 days um, that comes up out of the ground after you start seeding. Um, a big thing, especially here in this area is that you, you want rain either before you seed or after it's already come up. Mm. Um, if we get, you know, just a little bit sprinkling of rain before that seeds come up out of the ground and germinated, um, it'll crust over and the top layer becomes like concrete. Mm. We can't push through concrete. So you have to go back in and reseed. So you're, you're kind of betting against mother nature with some of that too. Um, But no, so yeah, the wheat grows, um, comes up, puts on some tillers. Um, You usually want fairly good ground cover going into winter. Um, But most winter wheats are are pretty winter hardy. Um, The seed business that I'm with, we screen everything for winter hardiness. Um, So yeah, so they make it through the winter usually pretty well. Um, Up on Highway 2, they've got snow mold issues if you've got snow cover on it too long. Mm. But you also want snow because it acts kind of as a uh, blanket for your wheat. Mm -hmm. um wheat doesn't like when it's real cold and windy that can ding it up a little bit
1: Um, is it the cold or is it the dry from the wind that dries it out that causes the problem
0: both both but a lot of it's the wind chill it just they can't handle handle you know negative 10 wind chill if it doesn't have a snow blanket on it um so once again we're always kind of going up against mother nature and there's a lot of different varieties which is another huge thing that Uh, growers have to pick every year is exactly what what genetics they're going to put on their ground Mm -hmm. some do better in drought situations but if you get a lot of spring rain they might not produce as much Mm -hmm. so so where are you going to place your bets are you going to get fall rain spring (laughs) rain are you going to get a lot of snow no snow Uh, what diseases are we going to have next year it's it's a a balancing act
1: the casino the slot machine that is farming (laughs) right you just roll the dice
0: yep yeah for the
1: best yeah yeah and All just, gambling analogies <laughs> apply. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You have to be a vet man or woman to, to get yeah. into farming or agriculture. Um, and just to throw another wrench in, into it. We don't do it here. Um, but there are some growers, especially looking at irrigated, and they're starting to do it over in the Palouse. Um, they'll put in spring wheat in the fall, mm. um, which doesn't need the cold to vernalize, but it just gets extra spring growth. Um, or extra growth in the fall mm-hmm. on it. So it gets a little bit bigger, it produces a little bit better just because it gets a longer growing season. Um, and then another thing, especially with the irrigated guys, you know, all of their rotations usually are more around potatoes. So that's what makes all the money. Mm. Wheat is is a necessity just to break up the life cycle of diseases and their spuds. Um, but if they don't have as much fall work, um, so if they can get their wheat out of the way in the fall and then go back yeah. to what's important, the potatoes, the corn in the spring um, just helps break up manpower. So there's, there's quite a bit of fall planted spring wheat that goes in. Um, and it, it does pretty well, but once again, you know, you're planting a spring wheat in the winter. So you're crossing your fingers that, that it's going to make it.
1: You talked about genetics. How does that work? I mean, you're growing wheat and But you're, yeah, you have lots of different stuff to choose from then, like different varieties. Is that what you yep. mean by genetics? Like- yeah,
0: yeah. So my uh, my actual day job is I work for a, a large breeding company. Wow. Um, so it just, you know, wheat breeding 101. It takes about seven years from the time that you make the original cross until a variety starts getting out on growers' fields. Um, so it's a huge process. And there is a lot of research and development that goes into Uh, these different varieties that make it onto a grower's field. Here in the PNW, we've got, um, oh, about a handful of breeding companies that are breeding Mm. wheat. Um, Some private, I work for a private company, um, and then the public, so the universities, um, WSU, U of I, Oregon State, all have really strong breeding programs for this area.
1: So how do they do do that? You say across, like they basically take two different kinds of wheat and like, do the whole, like, pollen transfer thing, and I I, I have no idea how it works.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so wheat is all conventionally bred, Um, so there's no commercial GMO wheat available. Mm.
1: Um, Not, you can't get it at all?
0: Nope, no, there's uh, some, some companies are playing around with it in very early stage testing, Uh, but there is zero, zero commercial wheat, Um, there is no GMO grain that goes out into the market, it is all 100% conventional.
1: Crazy, because a lot of people are very worried about GMO stuff in wheat products that they buy. And I think they assume that, you know, GMO wheat is causing problems, yada, yada, causing celiac disease or, you know, gluten intolerance and things like that.
0: Yeah, no major misconception. Um, And you see that in a lot of crops because there really aren't that many GMO uh, foods that are out there. Um, there's things like corn that, you know, gets put into a lot of products. Um, but there really, there really isn't that many actual GMO crops out there. Um, so yeah, that's one thing I like to correct. Um, wheat isn't one of them. And then also another thing that people think is, you know, if, if a crop is resistant to a chemical that it's GMO, which is also not true. So we have, um, beyond resistant wheat, which uh, is a a herbicide chemical. Um, we call it clear field. And that's all conventionally bred. There's naturally some wheat that was out there that was resistant to this, this chemical. Um, And so we just started making a lot of crosses to it. And eventually you bring it into, we call it adapted germplasm. So, you know, stuff that fits here. um, We're mostly soft white uh, in the PNW. And so, you know, you can bring in a lot of those kind of traits that we talk about without actually having to be GMO and going through just normal uh, breeding methods.
1: So you talk about, like you mentioned, soft white, how many different kinds of wheat are there that are grown? Not even just the varieties, because there's probably lots of varieties of each, but there's soft white wheat. What else is there? And what are the differences?
0: Um, Oh, goodness. Um, So there is soft white winter wheat, hard red winter wheat, soft red winter wheat. Mm. Um, And then there's club, which is a subset of soft white winter wheat. Okay. And then on the spring side, um, there's club, uh, spring wheat, soft white spring wheat, hard red spring wheat.
1: And so what are those used for? And like the wheat that you guys grow, what becomes of that wheat? Because there's so many different things that wheat gets used for, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. It goes into a ton of different products. Um, so here in the PNW, like I said, we're about 80 to 85 percent soft white winter wheat. We are the only region in the U.S. that can grow soft white winter wheat. Mm. Um, just our climates are are ideal enough um, for that that class of wheat. Most of the country, um, especially when you go get over into the plains, are um, reds. Um, so being soft white, it's an export market. Mm. Um, so over 80 percent of our wheat goes. Um, a lot of it goes to the Pacific Rim, mm. um, noodles, sponge cakes, pastries, that kind of stuff is what that goes for. Um,
1: so it's more of a specialty thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, so it's the PNW, Australia, uh, Russia, Ukraine are the the regions that grow this type of wheat. Mm. Um, so it's kind of a smaller smaller market, just because it is a little niche-y. Um You can't just put it everywhere. Um, hard red winter wheat is more adaptable across the country. Um, and then soft red, like I said, that's quite a bit in the plains. Um, we don't do any soft reds up this way.
1: So hard reds, soft reds, what do they make out of those things?
0: Breads. Um, yep. A lot of breads. Uh, and there is hard red that's grown up this, this way too. And most of that's going for, for bread, pastry type things.
1: So you've busted the myth about GMO. (laughs) Yep and we've talked about the different kinds of by the way you're talking about plant breeding within those subsets the soft white winter wheat how many different varieties are there you're talking about crossing and coming up with different varieties are there like dozens hundreds um, thousands
0: that have ever been created (laughs) thousands yeah um so like i said it takes about seven years to bring bring a new variety to market um once it comes to market you know, we're turning out varieties pretty quick now. Um, So it's usually five to seven years that it's actually commercially viable Mm. before something bigger and better comes along and takes it out, whether that's because it has a better disease package or it just out yields. Um, And I'm trying to think, I counted last year, I think in Washington, there was something like 67 soft white varieties. So just, yeah. And then that's not looking at, you know, springs, hard reds. There's a lot of options. So um,
1: how does a farmer pick which one they're going to plant of those varieties? Like, does it depend on each field and the soil or their yeah. location? Yeah. Weather? So the
0: the biggest thing, um, first off, is location. So what's your rainfall? Because um, what's going to work here in Ritzville at 12 inches is probably not going to work over in Genesee where they're getting 20 plus. Um, mm. So a lot of it is, you know, we break it out by rainfall um, in this area. We we kind of have three regions. So dry land, which is that low moisture, intermediate, um, which is like the Dayton, Walla Walla, um, over to Lewiston area. And then high moisture, which is Palouse country, irrigated. And so after that, you start looking at, you know, some some varieties are going to emerge quicker. Um, dry land, that's really important. No-till, that's really important. Yeah. Um, disease package, you know, stripe rest, septoria, stripe. What do you have on your fields because yeah. um, once again ceph stripe isn't an issue out here
1: so those are all diseases that yep. we and when you say a disease package that means a particular variety tends to be resistant to those things
0: yep yeah um so there's soil diseases there's you know leaf diseases um some of those we can treat with chemical if you need to um, but there's some things we don't have chemical treatments for so you're only um, your only safeguard is going to be that genetic resistance that's bred into whatever variety that you choose. Um, so there's, you know, 20 plus different factors you have to look at um, and then decipher between these 60 something varieties. Uh, so there's a lot of testing that goes on. A lot of that's public data. Um, the company I work for, we do trials. And so we, we publish all that data. The universities all have um, very strong variety testing programs that growers look to um, but usually the biggest source of information is whoever they buy their seed from. Um, you know those are the people who are out walking fields all day, every day. That's what they live mm-hmm. and breathe, kind of variety and seed selection. Yeah. Um, so they're they're a valuable resource um, to the growers and help make a lot of decisions on on what to put on your piece of ground.
1: so and and there's all these varieties. none of them are GMO. Correct. And then, you know, to touch, go from one hot button issue to another, <laughs> what about Roundup or glyphosate? I know there's concern that Roundup and, you know, it's been in the news a lot lately and there have been court cases and people are very worried about it. There's concern that it's being used on wheat. Is is there Roundup on the wheat that we eat here from <laughs> Washington?
0: Um, so short answer is no, there isn't. Mm. Um, Roundup is a very safe chemical, despite what some lawsuits may say. Uh, that's not always by, based in science, um, but any chemical that you look at is going to have a pre-harvest interval. There's been a lot of studies by EPA and various companies um, showing what that safe time frame is from the time that you spray something in crop to how long you have to wait before you can harvest it and it can go into the grain channel. Um, so if if any chemical is ever sprayed, you know, that PHI is always adhered to, you um, So everything that's going into the food channel is safe.
1: So, Uh, but there's no glyphosate on the wheat grown here.
0: No. So, so that's the, that's the biggest thing though, is it's a misconception that Roundup is sprayed on wheat very often. Um, Roundup kills wheat. We don't have any, any varieties that are resistant to it. Um, And so you don't, you don't want to go in and prematurely kill your wheat Um, because every day that it stays green, it's putting on more grain and that's how farmers get paid. Um, is by how many bushels they bring in. And and so you you wouldn't want to go and do that anyways. There are some regions in the U.S., um, kind of up in the north, northeast, they will use it you know, on a one-off year that is really wet, really short season, to help something dry down if the wheat just isn't producing or isn't mm-hmm. drying down like it should be. That's a, a, an insanely small portion of the market mm-hmm. um, that has to do that. You see it a little bit more in Canada, Mm. Um, but it's very, very rare in the U S to ever, ever use Roundup in crop on a wheat. Um, and nobody
1: does that here in Washington. No, no, that.
0: nobody does that here in Washington. And then once again, even if they did, it's still safe, um, because all of that research that goes behind it, um, and how long you have to wait from spraying to when you can harvest anyways. So it doesn't really happen. If it did happen, it would still be okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's not, not an issue, even though it's, you know, a big misconception that that Roundup is popular in that.
1: So we've talked a little bit about what becomes of your wheat and that it kind of gets exported to kind of the Pacific Rim, you know, probably some used in the US, but a lot, you know, on the other side of the Pacific Rim, so to speak. Um, And particularly for the kind of wheat that we produce here in Washington, being more suited to the cuisine, like Eastern style, you know, Asian cuisines, right? With noodles and different things like that, that it's better for than like the bread type hard red wheat out of the Midwest or something. Yep. Um, how does it get there though? I mean, what, what's the, I guess what's the process of transporting it for it to get to say China yeah. or Japan or wherever?
0: Yeah, so starting at the field, you know, we go through everything with combines. Um, the combine loads into, depending on your operation, it can load into a bank out wagon, which is pretty much just a tractor pulling a really big trailer, um, cause you can't always get semis back or grain trucks back into, you know, some of these fields that are steep and kind of hairy combines can make it. Trucks cannot um, So it'll go from the combine either into a bakeout wagon or a semi or a grain truck. Um, then you rode that down to your local elevator. Um, so there's a couple of different ha- grain handling companies. Um, a lot of those guys try and be by a railway. Um, so then they can take it by rail uh, down to Portland. Um, some of them do have to run a semi. So it'll go rail or semi. Um, over to Portland from Portland, it gets put on a barge and then goes to, to wherever it, it's intended use is, um, kind of in the middle of all of that though, um, there's multiple quality checks. Um, mm. cause wheat isn't just wheat, all grain isn't the same. We talked about classes, right. um, but even within those classes, there's different quality parameters that you have to be in. Um, test weight is a big one, um, falling numbers. There's all these different things that we test for before it makes it to the miller, Um, and then through the variety breeding process, um, it goes through multiple quality checks to make sure it's, it's going to fit the parameters that these millers and bakers want and need as well.
1: It's a lot of stuff. Yeah,
0: it is. And I never realized until, um, until I started working for a breeding company, really what goes into, you know, all of this development to get something from, you know, like I said, that first cross into a field. Um, it's a lot and you have to check a lot of boxes. And it seems like every year we add, you know, more new things that we have to meet for these new Mm -hmm. varieties. Like I said, they have to be bigger and better, um, to make it to be economically viable for both the grower, the seed company and the breeding company.
1: How did you get into all of this? (laughs) Oh, you said you you're you're raised by a single mom and she was not in farming yeah uh, what, what's what was the journey
0: yeah so it really was a journey to get here um so yeah like I said um single mom she was an engineer I don't come from an ag farming background at all um I kind of blame it I was the little girl who never grew up and um always wanted a pony and that's really what got <laughs> me into it um when I was about 11 I somehow convinced my parents that it'd be a good idea to get me a horse. And so they did eventually. I beat them down enough. Um, and so I got this horse and got into 4-H and loved it.
1: Where, where was this? Where? Uh, Tri-Cities. In the Tri-Cities. Yep, so. yep,
0: Tri-Cities. So I ended up uh, boarding and kind of riding with some friends that I went to church with and ended up finding a place to board this horse and got in with a 4-H club um, and just loved it. I loved all of it. And, but my mom jokes that she was like, well, yeah, she, you know, she'll stick with it until she's 16 and gets a car and boys and <laughs> sports and trouble and stuff. Um, and I got a truck instead of a car when I turned 16. Um, and I kind of got into the rodeo queening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was a rodeo queen for a couple years. And what does it
1: mean to really, to be a rodeo queen? What does that entail?
0: Oh, um, it's a lot of travel. It's a lot of hairspray. <laughs> um, <laughs> We get the Dolly Parton hair going on, um, but it's it's more than, you know, just sitting on a horse and waving. So I did a lot of parades, um, you know, go to a lot of rodeos, you push back cattle for the ropers, um, but it's, it's a lot of advocacy too, because, mm. you know, ag kind of gets a bad rep, um, both on the cropping side and on, you know, livestock animal welfare. And so it's a lot of just speaking out about that as well as just promoting, you know, your local community and your local mm. rodeos. Um, So I had some local titles and then my last title uh, was Miss Pro West, which is an organization that sanctions rodeos throughout the entire PNW. Um, So I got to travel and just meet a lot of just phenomenal people um, and really interact with the public and kind of share our story. Um, It was more on the, you know, animal livestock side, but just general agriculture in general. Um, It's kind of just being a spokesperson for those couple years that you do it and you get to wear a lot of glitter and you have these gorgeous horses and I like sparkles <laughs> and bright colors. And so it, it just fit me really well and I really enjoyed it and, um, got to meet just some fantastic people. So through that, um, I did a running start full-time in high school. So my junior and mm. senior year, um, I didn't go to the high school at all. I went full-time at Columbia basin mm. college. Um, my senior year, I was able to do pretty much all of it online. Um, pros and cons at 17, not actually having to go to a classroom. <laughs> um, but I ended up working for a hay company that mm-hmm. I met through the royalty stuff. So I worked for them full time. I started out in the office, just kind of organizing paperwork. And then I was decent at a computer. So I started helping with truck logs and entering that. And then I started helping just running their fleet of about 25 trucks um, that, that shuttled hay between their farm there in Haltopia um, in Seattle where, cause they were another export company. Um, a lot of our products go overseas, a lot of our agriculture products. So their hay, uh, for the most part was going to either dairies or racehorses, yeah. um, in Japan. Um, mm. so I, I did some of that and then there were days that they ended up shorthanded. So I would drive pilot car and driving pilot car, moving machinery turned into me helping move machinery. Um, so it all kind of spiraled from there. So I graduated from high school, didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and so I ended up getting hired on with Simplot, uh, starting out doing soil and petiole samples on potatoes. Um, I already knew how to drive a truck and trailer, which is, you know, an extra check mark. <laughs> um, and if you know how to do something, even slightly proficiently, it seems like in ag, you end up doing it quite a bit where you get thrown into it. Yeah. Um, so they started hooking me up to chemigators uh, to go pull chemical out to pivots. Um, so I ended up getting my uh, commercial chemical license, um, applicator's license. So I started doing chemical applications. Um, that turned into that fall, I got my fumigant license um, for when we were still able to do uh, fumigants through the pivots on potatoes, uh, which is no longer allowed, but it was when I was down there. Um, so I started doing that and I loved it. And it was grunt work and I put in just crazy amounts of hours. Um, cause I wasn't going to school. I took my gap year, so I just worked a ton. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed it, but I looked around at, you know, some of the people that I worked with and some of them were, you know, in their thirties trying to support a family and just working, you know, up till two o'clock in the morning and, mm. I was looking at you know uh, the crop advisor that I, I worked under and you know his lifestyle, and I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be the one that was calling the shots and telling everyone what to go do, um, not the one doing it for the rest of my life. So that's when I decided uh, to go to school uh, for ag. So I went to Washington State University, majored in ag tech and production, which is just a phenomenal kind of all-around program, especially not coming from an ag background. Um, I didn't have you know, I'd had experience, but I didn't have some of those fundamentals around just machinery, you know, broad range from a bunch of different crops. I would pretty much solely worked in hay and then spuds. Um, so I remember like some of my classes, I had to take an electrical class where we had to actually wire, you know, plugs and lights, um, Yep. And I took an engine class where we had to take apart and rebuild an engine, and just all this really hands-on stuff. And then, along with you know soil science, weed science, um, it was a really good general all-around degree. Um, that's where I met my husband too, so that's you know always a good thing.
1: Was he in the same program or just? Yeah,
0: yeah, same program. We got uh, graduated together. Um, he had kind of a weird—I don't want to say weird, but a different path too. So he's um, comes from a family farm fourth generation. He always wanted to go home and farm eventually, but he started out as a mechanical engineering major. Mm. Um, partway through his degree, decided to to switch um, over to ag. And so he's two years older than I am, but we still graduated together. So mm. I give him a hard time for that yeah, sometimes. Yeah. But um, yeah, so did that, graduated. I got hired on with Syngenta. Um, and at the time, I wasn't going to make decisions based off a boyfriend because it's just a boy and there's a lot of them in the world um even though i loved him um but i think you know some of that just comes from coming from a really strong single mom um, yeah. who was very you know dedicated to her career i wanted that too and i wanted to get out and see the world and go do my own thing so so i told him if i ended up in washington cool if not he can either follow me or uh, or i'd see him down the road and so uh, my first, so my Genta runs a training program for their new sales reps. Um, so I got put in Florida, um, which I, I told them I wanted to stick as close as I could to the PNW somewhere, yeah. you know, like a day's drive home kind of deal. Um, so, of course, they put me in Florida They really test you out of the gate, right. um, which was a huge, just a huge growth opportunity because, you know, I didn't know anybody in the entire state when I moved over there. um i didn't know the crops i didn't know the i didn't know anything about florida other than there were alligators i thought and that was about it (laughs) um so i go to florida and i was there for five months um like i said learned a lot grew a lot as a person it was my first time ever experiencing discrimination based on my gender Mm. um which was interesting because you don't always think about that in ag but it there is kind of a stigma around women in some areas I've seen it and heard it a little bit in the Midwest too, but it was, it was very prevalent in Florida, um, Mm. that women, you know, we were meant to stay home and make babies and, and help our farm husband, but we weren't supposed to be in the field. Um, so that, that was a learning opportunity, kind of just dealing with some of that. Um,
1: so it's not like that here in Washington as much?
0: No, no, not at all. Um, you know, you look around Washington and, We've got, I would say out of the country, we probably have the highest percentage of women in ag, Um, kind of the West Coast. It was the same way when I was in California. Um, There's a lot of really high powered, high position, very well respected women in the field um, here. And I think, especially my generation, we're seeing more of that in the private sector, but we're also seeing a lot more um, girls come home and take over the family farm, Um, which you know, you don't, you don't see that you know, 20, 30 years ago, the daughters were taking over. And I know multiple farms where, you know, it's all girls and the girls came home and they're kicking butt at it and doing phenomenal, um, which is really exciting to see. Yeah, But yeah, no, Florida was not not that way. Um, I was the only woman who worked in the field in the entire state, um, especially with having a name like Riley, uh, which is typically, you know, a man's name. People were a little thrown off the first time they Mm -hmm. met me because I'm very much not a man. Um, but it, it worked out. I learned a lot. I learned how to handle myself in those kind of scenarios.
1: And I just can't imagine people thinking that way. Like, why? Yeah. Why is that a thing still? Yeah. Seems so archaic to me.
0: It does. And especially coming from, you know, a progressive state, it just, it really threw me off guard. Um, I wasn't prepared for that and. At first, I wasn't sure if I was cut out for ag. Like, well, is it, you know, is Washington a bubble and it's like this everywhere? Mm. And it's not. Um, and I will say, you know, I met a lot of people that were that went back to Florida or are now working, women who are now working in Florida that are helping to change that narrative in that, that geography, um, which is what we need. But I think it's a lot to ask someone to be like, hey, go down and work in this place where nobody's going to like you or respect you. Mm. Um, and they don't think that you should be there. So good luck. Um, yeah, so that, that was, that was a challenge. Um, I was only down there five months, uh, thankfully. And I was also there, I moved down there in June, which is a terrible time to go to Florida. It is so hot and humid and the mosquitoes are as big as I am. Um, but yeah, so I did that. And then I got my permanent sales territory in uh, central California. So I was about half an hour North of Fresno, um so I did chemical sales down there for 2 years. Um and this whole time um Eric and I were doing kind of off and on long distance. Mm. Uh he graduated and came back to the family farm. He worked for nutrient for a little while kind of in the interim of taking over for his dad. And so yeah, so we did that off and on. I was down there for 2 years. Um I worked primarily in tree crops. Um I had some wine grapes um some tomatoes but it was it was primarily almonds pistachios walnuts loved it down there um, you want to talk about you know advocating for ag yeah. uh, California is a state that really needs it and yeah. i had a lot of really good conversations you know just you know sitting in an airport and people get chit chatting you know what do you do and um so i think it's really important uh, so i loved it down there i would have stayed in california forever which i know a lot of people are looking always to get out of california but I loved the grower base that I worked with. I loved the agriculture in Central Valley.
1: They do so much there. They do, and I That's think amazing.
0: people don't realize how much ag comes out of California. It's our, it's the largest ag producing state by far in the country, mm-hmm. um, and it kind of just gets glossed over for LA, Sacramento, San yeah. Francisco. Like it's, it's this huge chunk of the state. That produces you know all of our fresh vegetables and um the majority of the world's almonds are coming out of california so it was a great great place to learn um eventually i I joke with my husband eventually he manned up and put a ring on it Um, (laughs) and and you can't move the family farm so the only option was for me to come back up here Um, there was an opening in the seeds with, with Syngenta, um, about that same time. So I was able to stay with the same company and transfer up. Um, but once again, I, I didn't have any experience in wheat. Um, I had done all of my training had been on the chemical sales side and seed is a whole different monster, um, the way that seed operates. So it was a big learning curve coming up here, but now I live and breathe wheat. Like that's, that's what I do for my day job. That's what we farm. Um, it's, it's. Interesting sometimes being in the same industry as your spouse because um, mm. it's hard to, you know, walk in the door and just part work away because that's, yeah. that's your livelihood <laughs> all of the time. And so there's been times that we, you know, lay in bed and argue over varieties or <laughs> or different soil practices or like what, what farming what, couples argue uh, about yeah, it. <laughs> yeah what we should what we should be doing it's it's yeah so that part's interesting and we go to all the same meetings and yeah um so you know pros and cons to that but it's also it's also really cool and i think i can bring you know some information because i do cover the whole west coast and um i talk to a lot of different growers and a lot of different seedsmen and kind of get some outside perspective that I can bring home to the farm and help with. And even though, you know, right now it's the farm is run um, pretty much by my husband, I help with some of the big decisions and bounce ideas off and that kind of thing. But I'm not day-to-day operating with the farm right now. Um, down the line, you know, we might be able to do that where I can stay home and yeah. daycare is always a challenge. So stay home and raise babies yeah. and help help with farm things. But um, yeah, so it's it's it was a long journey. Uh, to get here i couldn't imagine anything else and i i put a big part of it on to programs like 4-h and ffa i probably never would have gotten into into horses to begin with if there wasn't a great 4-h program that fosters that and helps helps kids do that and even if they don't you know can't do a large animal there's so many different projects you can do in those programs they help just get kids exposed to where where their food comes from. You know, different different avenues. You don't have to be a farm kid to get into farming.
1: Well, that's what I was just gonna say. Like you're living proof of that, because there tends yep. to be the sense that well, if I didn't grow up in farming, that's not really in the cards for me anyway. Because there are honestly kids out there who are interested in it.
0: Yep, and you that don't have don't to grow be... up around
1: it, but they may feel like, well, my family isn't into that. But if you get involved, like you said, with 4-H. FFA and educationally do different things, and like you said, WSU. <laughs> yep, going through programs like what you did there, it is totally possible for someone who's interested in growing food to get into farming.
0: Oh yeah, and you don't have to be a farmer to be in farming either. Um, there's so many, you know, so, I don't want to say supporting, but so many jobs that feed into the farmer themselves. You've got agronomists and seedsmen and all of the R and D that goes into ag is just crazy, and takes just these huge crews of people um, who are dedicated to bringing the best product to the farm, so that we can produce the best crop possible for the public. Um, so, yeah, so there's all these different opportunities that I just don't think are well well publicized or don't don't get offered to to kids when they're looking at their career. And you know, we've all had a lot of challenges throughout the all the COVID and ups and downs in industries, but we're always going to need food ag ag is always going to be here. It's fairly stable. Um, so it's a, it's a really great career path from that standpoint is that, you know, we're always essential. Um, and and no matter what, growers have to put seed in the ground, they have to harvest. Um, there's going to be inputs. And, and so it's, it's a really great career. It gets you out of an office. I get, oh the winter just kills me (laughs) when I'm in front of my computer so much. And so you're out out in the field, you just meet these amazing people and families. And it, it, you know, I tell anybody, any, you know, high school kid who's looking at maybe not knowing what to do, really, really explore the different things under the ag umbrella that you can do. Um, kind of depending on where your interests lie, whether it's plants, if you like machinery, um, the technology behind farm equipment now, I think maybe surpasses other, other industries by far. Um, so there's a lot of different opportunities.
1: Thanks for sharing your story, telling us all about it. And yeah, it, it, what you do is pretty impressive.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for coming. And, I appreciate it.
1: And keep this all moving at the same time as, you know, having a family and having kids and yeah, it's a lot I can tell, but it looks like you're thriving and doing <laughs> well at it. So I, I I'm impressed and, and thanks for inviting me into your home here to talk about it.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. It's, it's fun getting these stories out and, um, I want to say i hope it inspires someone to to get into ag that maybe didn't think it was a possibility for them this is the real food real people podcast these are the stories of the people who grow your food
1: well as you could tell she's young and she didn't grow up in farming but she's tough and she's not going to take no for an answer and she really knows her stuff. Very, very sharp uh, person. Riley Hilly, she's a seed uh, consultant, a salesperson, as well as a family wheat farmer along with her husband and her in-laws in the Ritzville area in eastern Washington. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm Dylan Honkoop, and this podcast is documenting my journeys around the state to get to know the real people behind our food, to reconnect our food system, if, if we're eating food that's produced here, and we care about food that's local and, and produced close to home, we need to know the people that are doing it and what drives them. Why do they do what they do? Can we trust them? What are the hard their answers to the, the hard questions? That's what this podcast is for. We appreciate your support. You can see the entire video of this conversation on YouTube. Just check out Real Food, Real People on YouTube. Um, Several recent episodes there as I'm kind of getting better at the whole video thing, kind of even though I'm still making mistakes, as you may notice in this week's video. But it is available there on YouTube as well as on Facebook, and you can watch it there. Uh, Real Food, Real People, or I guess at RFRP underscore podcast on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook. And the full episode is available on uh, Facebook in video form as well. The website is realfoodrealpeople.org, and we'd really appreciate uh, you checking that out and and sharing our content sharing our episodes our videos our other posts across your social media really helps us grow what we're doing here to connect more people bring more people into the fold here uh, of who the real people producing the food in this state are oh and i should also thank our sponsors, Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Save Family Farming, giving a voice to Washington's farm families. You can find them online at savefamilyfarming.org and by Dairy Farmers of Washington, supporting Washington dairy farmers, connecting consumers to agriculture, and inspiring the desire for local dairy. Find out more at wadairy.org.